podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. Martin Parkinson was, until recently, Secretary of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet for the Australian Government. He's the most senior Mandarin of Mandarins. And before that, he was the Secretary of the Treasury, both incredibly important jobs. He's an inscrutable public servant, or was, uh, but I suspect that there's a deep hidden passion lurking inside. And uh, Martin, welcome to Pine Time. Thanks, Christopher. And we were just laughing before we um, started about how we were both somebody's once. Yeah, once. <laughs> Past tense, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, what, so what have you found the hardest thing about uh, life after being a somebody? Life skills, <laughs> or the absence thereof. Um, in particular, trying to manage a diary. Hopeless, um, isn't it? That's absolutely awful. <laughs> so you would have had, I had about 25 people in my ministerial and electorate office that whose I thought primary purpose was to make me look good every day. Oh, and keep you out of jail. <laughs> exactly. That was harder. Yeah, that was harder. <laughs> that was the harder part. So uh, the thing I've missed is the nightmare of logistics. Yeah. Which yeah. I'd never done before. No, it's that issue of, I mean, it, sound, it sounds pathetic, doesn't it? It does. It's, it's terrible. It's sort of trying to line everything up, get the logistics sorted out, book the flights, organise the meetings at the other end, uh, and then anything happens and things inevitably happen, you've got to rejig the whole thing. And it used to just happen seamlessly. And completely so, incapable of doing so. It's a bit of a pale, stale, male, middle-aged problem, though, I think. Oh, it's absolutely a first-world problem. <laughs> and even amongst first-world people, it's it's more our problem, Christopher. In, well, nobody I else cares. I can't see, actually, I can't see your listeners being overly excited by our troubles here. Nobody cares less about it. So tell me, why the public service? Why does a, a man of great intelligence and uh, you went to Adelaide Union to start with mm-hmm. and then ANU, got your degrees, why did you think, I want to go into the public service for the next, well, how many decades were you in the public service for? Almost 40 years. Shivers, 40 years. Why do you do that rather than business or politics? or? So it's probably worthwhile just explaining a little bit of my history. I, I grew up... Um, a working-class kid in rural Victoria, country um, country Victoria. Which part? Born in Stall. Oh, grew yeah. up around Stall, Mansfield, Ballarat. Wow, that's Parents. a nice part of the world. Yeah, it is. But, you know, you move because of necessity, not because of opportunity. Mm. So, um, Does that so, make you a very fast runner? <laughs> well, funnily enough, I was. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> in Stall is a fast runner. <laughs> yeah, past, past tense, though. <laughs> And then uh, my folks moved to Adelaide right. uh, at the beginning of year 11. What for? Uh, just Dad got a job in Adelaide. Right. And I uh, 
I was actually going to a technical school, and okay. tech schools finished at, um, at year 11 in Victoria. Wow. So I went to Adelaide, and I had to go to high school. Didn't have any of the prerequisites for, um, you know, for the electives, so I picked up economics. So for me, economics was a real turning point, not so much the public service, because economics suddenly gave me tools to sort of understand why poverty was entrenched. And, you know, there's the background that we came out of, and you could see... You could see that there was just very little social mobility, mm-hmm. and where there was social mobility, it was either through luck or through somebody having creative skills, you know, so being a great sports person or a singer, right. or or it was education. So and we're so talking about seventies or the sixties, seventies, seventies, yeah. right? So I was fascinated by that, and um, my teachers and my classmates saw this ad for Treasury, and they um, insisted on filling it out and For saying, you. yeah, and saying, you've got to sign this, you've got to put this in. And so I Because thinking, you're obviously good at economics. Yeah. And I kept thinking, well, a place like Treasury is not going to, not going to be interested in a kid like me. Mm. So anyway, I did. And lo and behold, Treasury uh, liked what they saw, uh, paid for me to do my honours year, came up to Canberra in 81, did a year there. And then you ended up as secretary of the Department of the Treasury. Uh, much later, yes. So why do you think that the public service in Australia is such a misunderstood institution? I think partly it's a consequence of the way politics has gone. So I've, I've worked around the world and the governments that have been most successful have invested in institutions. They've, they've understood the importance of institutions. They've held them to high standards. So you know they're critical of them when they need to be critical of them. But the robustness of institutions has been incredibly important. And we had that for a long time. But I think over the last decade, it's become really easy, really convenient for politicians of all sides of politics and at all levels of government to promise things, promise easy solutions to complex problems, <laughs> which then <laughs> can't actually, then actually can't be delivered. Yeah. And so you, you erode trust. Now, you don't just erode the public's trust in the politicians and the political class, you actually also erode it in the public service. And then you throw in on top of that those examples where there have been major procurement projects that have just gone horribly, horribly wrong. Mm. So Queensland Health, our own attempts here around um, various computer and IT projects. Royal Adelaide um, Hospital. Royal Adelaide Hospital, mm. the PPP in Melbourne for the Southern Cross Station. Mm. And so people see, they see this and say, well, you guys aren't very good at throwing the census. Right? They see, you're just not very good at I any of these I thought the census things. was going to be very tricky, actually. Yeah. So I was on a committee which was given a presentation on the census months and months and months before, it was August, wasn't it, the census? August the 8th yeah, or something. Something like that. And I listened in silence to this presentation from this minister and thought, this is never going to fly. <laughs> and I knew that Malcolm was thinking about the timing of the election. So as soon as that meeting was over, I beetled around to the Prime Minister's office and said, you can't have the election after August the 8th. <laughs> he said, why is that? I said, because the census <laughs> is going to be electronic and it's on August the 8th. He said, what difference does that make? I said, well, there's absolutely no possibility. <laughs> that is not going to have hitches. We've never done this before. So you're going to have an election campaign and the census in the middle of it, it'll be a complete fiasco and we'll get blamed. 
And that's unfortunately how it came to pass. Now, of course, we saved it in the end. And we got money back from the people who were supposed to run it properly. And poor old Michael McCormack, he became the minister for the census, remember, only about yeah. six weeks or five weeks before August. A- the absolutely. And he, he didn't. Oh, <laughs> he was just steamrolled he by that was. thing. And I knew, I knew he wasn't responsible for it. No, no, he wasn't responsible. And I kept thinking to myself, well, poor old Michael is out and everyone's blaming him for the census. And he was only been in the job for about a month and a half. So um, those kind of IT issues were not always, we shouldn't no. be the first movers on them. So we had, we had actually already begun to move towards electronic filling out of the census, but the scale of this... The scale was immense. ...was, was immense. Mm. But the other thing... Was ambitious, the, Minister. The, the other, the other <laughs> thing about it, though, yeah. <laughs> the other thing about it, though, is that, frankly, it, it just highlighted... It highlighted, I think, negligence on the part of, of some of the people who were involved. Well, we got money for it. Yeah, I know. Didn't we? We did. We sued them and they gave us Oh, we were, going, we were going to sue no, them. We didn't have to sue we them, them in the end. Them in the end they, but they, they breached their contract. Yeah. Quite spectacularly. Yep. You've promised the public simple solutions to hard problems, which then can't be delivered. And so the public begin to doubt the beneficial intent of the political class, that is, are they really actually working in our interests? And they begin to doubt the competence of the public service. As a minister, I always thought one of my jobs was to be the advocate for my public servants in my department. You know, so I would go to Russell Hill as the minister mm. and spend time there. I got everyone together in industry, innovation, science at the convention centre and gave them big pep talk. And Glenis Beecham, bless her, said this hadn't happened before. Same in education, I used to go and visit Lisa Paul and all of her people and have sort of events to say thank you for stuff that was done. Because I thought you'd just catch a lot more flies with honey than vinegar. Absolutely. And the public servants reacted really well. And, you know, it, it always works best when you've got a minister who understands their role, which is the politics, and you've got a bunch of bureaucrats who understand their role, which is, you know, we have delegated authority. You're the elected representatives. You, in the end, make the decisions, but we have a consistent, stable role to play, irrespective of who's in government. And that starts with developing policy options that will help you reach your objectives or actually talking to you about, well, I think your objectives aren't quite the right ones we need to be pursuing for these reasons. And if we're sufficiently persuasive, then you might agree with that. And we worked up options together you as um, ministers then make the decisions about what you want to pursue and we as the apolitical public service go about doing the implementation. That's right. And that, and that works, you know, that works really well. As long as the minister is prepared to make decisions. That's right. So and to it, take responsibility. And those things are, you know, I think areas where we've seen erosion of standards over time. Are you a Catholic? I'm uh, an atheist. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I suppose I should say it. You're I'm, a cultural Catholic? I'm, I'm um, a member of the world's largest religion, which has lapsed Catholics. <laughs> right. And that, that just reminds you the importance of Catholicism. <laughs> you can never get away. <laughs> I remember when I, very, one of my very first jobs, a friend of mine, John Kane, and I went to a nursing home at university to ask for a job. And... I had never even considered religion as an important thing growing up in my generation, just mm. did not the same. The lovely person who was interviewing us said, um, you went to St Ignatius and John went to Ross Trevor, which is the Christian Brothers. We said, yes. And she said, have you tried 
a nursing home in your own faith's operations? (laughs) 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 And never even considered it. Never considered it, yeah. Never even thought of it. But that was like like 1985, 86, which is bizarre. It's never happened to me since, I must say. But it's been quite a big change too, by the way, to the voting habits of Catholics. Because up until the sort of 50s and 60s, not many Catholics would have even considered voting Liberal. Of course, the DLP changed all of that. Yeah. But because of the growth of affluence of Catholic voters, like through the professions, there's obviously a lot of Catholics who now vote Liberal. In fact, they don't even think twice about it. I mean, whether you're Catholic or not doesn't make the slightest difference. But I, I noticed that as my father's generation, they made more money over time. They sort of went from being obvious Labor voters to that they'd think about voting Liberal. And a lot of them would have voted Liberal for the first time in the sort of 60s and 70s, probably particularly the 70s. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's, but it just shows you how much Australia's changed. So much, hasn't it? I mean, you know, we're talking about this. this we were still pretty much a European country. Mm. You know, we'd had the, the great wave of uh, post-World War II migration from Eastern Europe mm. and Southern Europe, but we were still predominantly European country. You know, there were not... When growing up, we all had sort of school colleagues or friends who were of Greek or Italian ancestry or, you know, sort of Yugoslavian ancestry, but never, you just never, didn't see Asian kids. No. It's um, fantastic. And particularly, changed particularly so in country Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you still see that a bit depending where you are, actually. There's, you know, there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of Anglo-Saxon names on a list, for example, and you'll think, where's, mm. and then you'll realise you're looking at a Liberal Party branch list from the country. <laughs> because in, in my electorate of Sturt, there was a, it was much, much more multicultural. Of course, we had 8% Italian voters as well. Social media did change politics and changed my attitude to it because every morning you wake up and you look at your social media feed to see what horrendous things have been said about you now hmm. uh, overnight and there's never a moment where you can just relax mentally, you know, because of social media, like... There used to be a period during the day when virtually you actually had a break mentally from the media because they don't publish until the next day. You can always get phone calls from journalists, etc. But with the social media, it's just it's never ending. It's kind of grinding. But it's also made the development of policy uh, Very so much harder. Well, look what happened with Malcolm. You know, the the polls indicated that we couldn't win the election. The news poll driven by this mad sort of media cycle that we've got. Talking to our own polling indicated that, you know, we were well ahead of Labor across the marginal seats. That was certainly the feedback on the electorate. But the constant 24-hour news cycle had driven my colleagues to the point of distraction where they thought they had to get rid of the Prime Minister. Again, the fourth time in, what, 10 years or something that we did it that way, it was just, it was because of this madness of the, the, the bubble, I guess, and the social media combination. Yeah, and this is actually going to have real long-term consequences mm. for Australia. Mm. You know, if you go back and think, how do we do, well, whether it was Howard and um, Costello doing the introduction of the GST, or whether you go back to the tariff reforms or the button car plan, all of these things, we actually had time to think and we were able to define what the problem was that we were mm. really trying to deal with, and we were able to educate the community about what the problem was and then put out thoughtful pieces about what the option sets were. And the public 
participated in those discussions. I mean, I, I remember during the 80s and 90s, international visitors saying to us in the Treasury every time they'd come to Australia, we, we cannot believe the quality of the economic discussion in your newspapers. The Americans and the Europeans in particular were just astounded by it. Well, it's, what's astonishing now is that people with absolutely no credibility or credentials about economics or any any issues have such an enormous amount of airtime and their views are put alongside the views of Bernie Fraser as though they're both exactly the same. Yeah. And you know, it used to be that we could all have our own opinions, but we couldn't have our own facts. Well, nowadays, it looks like everybody can have their own set of facts. It does worry me a lot. But it is interesting because public policy, I mean, the public service is about public policy and you've been doing it for a lifetime. So it's obviously of great interest to you. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about today was the defence industry mm-hmm. policy. Yep. And a portfolio, I should say, because that was your idea, which most people wouldn't know. That's correct. <laughs> and just tell us why, one, you came up with it, why you thought I'd be good for it, and do you think it's turned out the way you expected? It was a realisation that we were not building ships we were building a shipbuilding industry. Mm. And that realisation that actually this was going to require a completely different set of skills. Defence did not have the skills, and I'm not being critical of the Defence Department, but... No, they'd you be were the going, first to admit it. Yeah, they, they were. You, mm. you, but you were going to need the Industry Department, you were going to need um, the Education Department, you need the Employment and Training folk, you were going to need you know, all sorts of different skill sets that we would not actually normally have thought about if we were just going to go and build a, a frigate. But we we're not going to build a frigate. We we're going to build an industry that would mm. continue to build ships and hopefully be able to export them at some stage. So I thought we needed a, a very, very different approach. Uh, so that's why I came up with the idea of the defence industry portfolio to put it into cabinet and uh, Prime Minister agreed because it, it seemed to me you actually needed the weight of a cabinet minister to actually help drive it. Did help. Oh, it helped a huge amount. And being leader of the House, it helped as well. And I also, to sort of try and reinforce that, took on the role of Secretary of, um, as the lead of the Secretary's Committee on Shipbuilding. Mm, You did. And uh, in fact, I suppose if there's one area where I devoted more time than anywhere else over the last sort of couple of years, it's actually been around naval shipbuilding. That's fascinating. Yeah. Because you've got a lot on your plate. Yeah, had, had a lot had, on your plate. Had. But as to why you, um, pretty simple, really. I wanted somebody um, who was going to really grab this and, and grab it by the scruff of the neck. So needed to be somebody with lots of energy and enthusiasm. And I thought, given the role that South Australia was going to play, if one of the South Australian ministers was in a position to do it, and um, Malcolm, you know, very quickly, you know, I didn't have to sort of suggest all that. He actually heard me out and then said, well, Christopher's the obvious person to do it. Well, I have absolutely loved it, by the way. Oh, it was fantastic. And I think those three years in the Cabinet in that role were easily the most rewarding uh, of my professional career in politics because we definitely moved the dial. And if you're in policy or if you're on the the decision-making side, you know, you want to be able to say you actually moved the dial. You didn't just kick the can down the road to someone else. And I think it is too early to say whether it's been a success or not. I, I'm sure it will be. It's too hard to fail. It's too important to fail. But we've certainly put in, in position the platform and the foundation for the future. It's been interesting, actually, because I'm not quite sure how we managed 
maybe because nobody noticed and we didn't tell anybody, to actually go from four or five shipyards to two with very little fuss. There's an enormous amount of ignorance about the naval shipbuilding plan. It's fascinating. You know, the, the things that people will say about the submarines, I still get asked the question, how many submarines are going to be built in France? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, there's never been a moment that any of the submarines are going to be built in France. We've always said all 12 are going to be built in Adelaide. Yet that'd be, if I do a, uh, an industry day and get asked to come and talk about the submarine program, that'll almost always be the first question I get asked. I mean, there's hundreds of people at Sherbourne right now from Australia learning how to build submarines and design submarines. Well, you and I have both been to the been to the Sherbourne facility, the, you know, the Australia House there. Exactly. Yeah, it's I fantastic. Mean, but I don't think, like, like St Thomas, until people can actually touch and feel the submarine shed and see the submarine starting to be built, they simply won't believe, won't believe yeah. it's possible. I mean, if you now go down to Osborne, they've almost finished the shed for the Hunter class frigates, which is not as big as the Adelaide Oval Stadium, but it's gigantic. Yeah, and when, when you call it a shed, it's a, we're actually exactly. misleading the listeners. It's about eight it's, stories it's high. It's massive. It's about eight <laughs> stories high, exactly. Yeah. And it's huge. And it's about three times as big as any of the other sheds at the Osborne shipyard. And the submarine shed is going to be bigger than the Adelaide Oval Stadium, hmm. which is twice as big as the Hunter-class shed. So you, you'll be able to see it from space. Yeah, <laughs> or to put it in context, Chinese it's like the the, the the Sivmec one, where mm. where you can have an entire Anderson. ship mm. um, standing upright on you know on on a, a ramp inside the shed. It's shed, that big. The Sivmec shed is a delight, but mm. I'm not sure everyone gets quite as passionate and as excited about sheds as, yeah. <laughs> as you and I do, Martin. <laughs> but we know that everything that's gone into them. Now, tell me, worst moments in Prime Minister and Cabinet as Secretary? Was it the incredibly diabolical citizenship controversy in the Australian Constitution, losing the Deputy Prime Minister to a by-election and having to over citizenship and then them all dropping like flies? Were you in I, the centre of that? I think uh, the worst period for me was that sort of last six months or so before uh, before the move against Prime Minister Turnbull. Right. Um, where, in fact, maybe you say the last 12 months, because every time the government got a bit of stability, mm. got a bit of momentum, and were able to focus really hard in on some of the tricky problem, political you know, sort of policy problems, yes. um, something would come out of left field, whether it was the citizenship, whether it was you know, sort of ministers being forced to fall on their sword or walk the plank because of um, personal behaviours, mm. uh, whatever it was. There was just then constant... Then there was the civil war over the national energy guarantee. There was just constant sort of things occurring that destabilised the government and made it harder to focus in on the key policy issues in front of us. I found that you know, really quite hard. That would have been frustrating. Uh, it, was, it was frustrating, but it was also... Um, it was also really quite debilitating uh, because, you know, you just didn't know how long you were going to be able to sort of focus in on an issue before something else was going to knock you completely off course. And um, for a senior public servant who wants that they want to focus on policy outcomes, 
Absolutely. They, they don't want to have, you know, constant change because you can never settle down and get anything done. No, that's right. And, and as you know, it takes, when you're a minister and you move into a new portfolio, mm. it takes you time to get on top of it. So if you've got constantly new prime ministers, you've got ministers being moved around all the time because the chessboard has got to be rebalanced in order to, to keep the uh, internal dynamic um, mm. in the party sort of relatively quiet, it makes, very, makes it very, very hard to get things done. I think people are looking forward to a bit of stable, uninteresting government. Well, <laughs> it could be interesting. The, but the, the most important thing is to uneventful get, government. The most important thing is to get politics off the front page and sport back on it. Absolutely, which is the way it should be. <laughs> exactly, and that's always our favourite time yeah. as a politician. I can tell you. So, a climate change department. Yep. Uh, was that? Did you seek to do that role? You thought that was? Is that you think the most important challenge facing the nation and the world at the moment? I think the most important challenge facing Western liberal democracies is that erosion of trust we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Because if if we're going to tackle climate change, it's a problem of the global commons. That is, no one country can fix it. So you need all countries, or at least the major emitters, the, the big 20, to come together and agree on how you're going to go forward. But to do that, you've got to have trust amongst the countries. And if you can't get trust between the citizenry and the elected representatives, you're going to find it very hard to get trust between countries. So whether it's how do we manage the rise of China, um, how do we deal with climate change, or just the the general er- erosion loss of confidence in the social compact, I think all of these things have their roots in the erosion of trust that's gone on over the last uh, last decade or two. You think for the reasons we talked about before. Were you disappointed when it all sort of disappeared? Well, yeah, absolutely. Gutted, in fact, I think no. is the right way to describe it. You think President Trump is, is adding to that erosion of trust? Well, I think um, President Trump's causing great uncertainty, particularly in this region, mm. where, you know, as I've said publicly, you know, we've got, we've got our major trading partner... Um, in dispute with us on a number of of issues. Um, And that major trading partner is trying to wean us away from our alliance partner. You know, we should... There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just... That's the way... That's geopolitics. That's geopolitics. Mm. On the other hand, our major alliance partner is themselves creating mass uncertainty and confusion um, because their trade policy is utterly inconsistent with their avowed strategic policy, strategic objectives. So I think um, I think we're in for a very tricky period. And indeed, you know, I've, again, I've, I've spoken about this, but, you know, if I'd started work, or you and I'd started work in 1950, we would not actually have envisaged that we were going to have our entire working life against the backdrop of the Cold War. If we had started work in, say, late 1980s, we wouldn't realise that um, the Soviet Union was just about to collapse and we'd have the bulk of our working life and this period of Pax Americana where mm. there was no other, world um, power. no other world power. What we do know is that for people who are starting their working life now, they're going to have, you know, as far as we can see, decades of strategic competition between the United States and China playing out and that is going to absolutely constrain the choice set 
open to Australia. And that'll show up where you're talking around trade policy, foreign investment policy, national security policy, all sorts of different um, dimensions are going to be affected. I think it's uh, that's absolutely true. I, I think the Australian media have to do a lot more work on understanding China, Martin. The commentary about China almost reminds me of the way, of them talking about a different China to the one we have. They, that hundred years of European humiliation of China is still, to me, seems to be the lens a lot of our commentators look at China through by sort of asking the question, why is China doing what it's doing? Well, China's doing what it's doing because it sees itself as a world power. Absolutely. And for yeah. thousands of years... <clears throat> in this region, was the world power. <laughs> they, they regard those hundred years of European humiliation as something that should be, is eminently forgettable. Yeah, and, and so everybody when, else is regarding it as the norm. And our commentators talk about mm. China, you know, rising, the rise of China, China's arrived, you know, whatever it might be, as though why are the Chinese causing all this trouble? You know, why are they, you know, testing their oats in the South China Sea? Now, obviously, we need to respond to what they're doing, and we don't like the idea of them obviously militarising the South China Sea, and we are doing our bit to try and stop that from happening. And I think we're doing the right thing. Um, and we want China to be a, a, a support, an enthusiastic support of the international rules-based order, which has been to their great benefit. But I, I, I just don't think the Australian commentariat has yet worked out that the China they are seeing through their own eyes is not the China that exists now or will exist in the future or that the Chinese people see. They see a, a, a world power that's quite legitimately being a world power and that the US can be a world power too, but they're certainly not going to be treated as inferiors, which is how they felt they were treated from the late 1860s, 70s through to the 1950s. I, I agree entirely. I mean, look, you know, I said strategic competition. Strategic competition does not mean war. So, mm, people, of so, not. so first of all, we've got to get over this breathlessness that That's you're seeing ridiculous. in parts of, parts of our media. Um, there will be strategic competition, but there was strategic competition between the United States and Britain um, while the United States was rising. There was strategic competition between Germany and Britain. Well, they did have and, a war. And they did have a war. I mean, so, 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 so the Brits can. and the Americans had a war. Yeah, but, but <laughs> a long time that was ago. a long time before. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so you can make mistakes and get into really bad situations, but there's no inevitability about it. Not at all. Um, but what, I don't think the Chinese <clears throat> want to have a war. No, it's not in their interest. That's not in their nature either, by the no, way. They've not been an expansionist power. They're a mercantile people who want to improve their lot in life mm. and the lot in life of their children and grandchildren. Uh, now, I'm not saying that they're you know, a cuddly panda, but they obviously got their, their difficulties. But I, And if I said that, what I said before about, you know, recognising China's own view of themselves and the world out in the press, you know, people would regard me as being soft on China. They say, oh, pine soft on China. And as you know, you worked with me, you on the NSC with me. Nobody would ever have accused me of being a dove when it came to national security policy. But, and I just think what I said was it was perfectly common sense. But if you say that these days... A lot of people think, why are they? Why is he going soft on China? But what does it mean to be soft on China? Well, that's, it's such a nonsensical phrase. That, that's exactly right. I mean, we've seen this sort of really artificial and very unhelpful distinction emerge that you're either soft on China mm. you're, or you're a hawk. It's ridiculous. And like it's a binary a choice. Binary choice. Well, it's not. Of course I not. Mean, and and we've got to marry our economic interests and our security interests. 
we are negotiating our sovereignty with them. So people who say it's all the government's fault, the government should do something, i.e. give the Chinese what they want, well, they're basically saying give away Australia's sovereignty. The people who say, on the other hand, well, China's some sort of evil power and we need to stand up to it, well, they're completely misreading the situation. Totally, and that's and, that's going to end in a fiasco. It en- ends in an absolute disaster for mm. us all. So I, I think neither of those sorts of positions make any sense at all. But I can just see in some of these um, articles that appear all the time nowadays about China that a lot of people who know better are being sucked into this binary choice. Yeah, just they this, are. Just this most recent uh, controversy with the man who claimed to be a Chinese you know, operative mm. and... I'm not sure a lot of work had, been, had gone into by 60 minutes to, chest, to test his uh, claims. And that's fair enough. That's their business. But we know that our people, uh, well, it used to be our people, um, mm-hmm. will go away and check these people's claims. And, but and they'll be incredibly thorough and they'll professional. They'll be very thorough. And they'll make an assessment. And they've come out and they've said, look, you know, some of them might be true, but we we're not convinced that he's quite the Chinese mm-hmm. espionage operative that, you know, he might have made himself out to be. But some quite sensible people in some of the institutions that we regard quite highly have backed up some of that, those claims being made and said, oh, now we're seeing inside the Chinese apparatus operating in Australia. It has hallmarks of real disaster coming down the road unless people start actually being a bit more mature about it. Yeah, I agree. I'm, um, worried, I'm quite worried about it, actually. I, I think you're right to be worried about it. You know, there is, uh, there's no question that the level of cyber intrusion, political interference, like, have gone, has gone through the roof. Sure. Um, and, it's not good. And, and that's not good. That's eroding our sovereignty. And we we must and are you know, responding to that. And that is entirely appropriate. But to then take it to the sort of level of hysteria where if somebody is a member of the Chinese diaspora, Automatically, they seem to have some sort of mark against them. Bizarre. It is. It is utterly corrosive to uh, social cohesion, mm. and it is just. It's just nuts. And and it's in fact it's the best way uh, to actually get the result people are talking about, right? Because you alienate of an entire section of community. I mean, you and I know that the government's taking cybersecurity very seriously, but I think across industry in particular, the Attitude to cybersecurity is it's a nice to have, not a must have. And I'm very worried about that because I think that's going to end in tears for a lot of people. I think that's right. So what I'm, can I'm, we do about that? Well, I mean, the extreme version is you try and have a, you know, a, a fortress Australia mentality where the government is somehow responsible for setting up the, the barriers around Australia. But that's, that's crazy. I mean, there's no way government can afford to do that or sh- should do that because it basically these are responsibilities of firms and individuals. This is a business cost. Yeah, yeah. It should be a business um, cost. I, I think part of it is that we've got to be really clear uh, about the consequences for firms um, when these sorts of breaches occur. So it's not just the... It's not. You know, I, I, I'm amazed, actually, at how little concern is expressed by the public when these breaches occur. Yeah, everyone uh, almost sort of factors it in, don't they? Yeah. They think, oh, but I mean, well. look, look, at, look at ANU, what's happened. Mm. You know, not blaming ANU, but just saying, you know, we should be appalled by this. Look at what happened to Parliament House. We should be appalled. And you and I know, mm. you and I know how much worse it all was. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which we can never talk about. <laughs> no. I think... I, uh, I think the Prime Minister's got the, the, the tone on this really right. He has, is, and so has the NSC. And, and You know, we welcome the rise of China. It's the best thing that's happened in the last half century. You know, lifted hundreds of millions of people mm. out, of, out of poverty, um, not just in China, but throughout the world who have benefited from this. Uh, and, you know, we don't want... We do not want to contain China. What we're trying to well, do... Well, you can't. You can't. So, we <laughs> don't, so, so any sort of Cold War containment strategy idea is just nuts. It's just not going to happen. And the, and the other thing is, we're not dealing with the Soviet Union, right? We're not dealing with a country that was hell-bent on global domination, that was running proxy wars all over the world. Hmm. You know, we're dealing with a country that actually people want to get rich. Uh, they want better better living standard for their kids and their grandkids. They want they want to clean up the air pollution which they've you know they've had to live with as they've developed, and you know, they want to be respected. Well, and all of that's legitimate. A lot of people don't understand that the historical analogies between the Soviet Union and China are so completely wrong because even during that period when the Soviet Union was at its height, uh, uh, Beijing and Moscow were not, never got on. Not friends. No, they were actually at loggerheads. Yep. I mean, they might have both been communists, but they had absolutely no interest in supporting each other at all. They were actually in, in a very busy competition. And, and if you think about it, from the time that Kissinger and Nixon went to China, hmm. the US and China had a common, a common enemy. Which was the Soviet Union. Soviet Union, yeah. So the completely different philosophies. So what's next for Martin Parkinson? What are you going to do now? Are you going to write a book? No. So what are you going to do? Well, um, I've become Chancellor of Macquarie University. Oh, I didn't so, know that. That's good. Yeah. So I decided I want to spend 20 to 25% of my time doing pro bono mm-hmm. things. So Chancellor of University, um, as you know, I've been heavily involved in uh, the whole diversity and inclusion, particularly around gender, for a, a long time. So uh, I'm going to continue my work with the male champions of change. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure I get to see a lot more football. You should go on the board of the Essendon Football Club. Well, there you go. I'll, I'll let you... Um, Have you been asked? And you, you <laughs> no, I haven't, say. I haven't been asked. Well, Martin, thank you for your time today. I think Thanks, it's been, Christopher. It's been good fun. It's been a delight. And uh, I think a lot of people will gain an insight into what the life of a senior public servant is like which they would never have otherwise gained. So thank you for being prepared to share with us. Thank you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.